are entering the Freedom Hut. The forever coup is upon us. Rashida Tlaib of Congress wants to arrest people. The ruckus over Syria continues. Where's Hunter Biden? And third world blackouts in California? We'll talk about that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Happy Columbus Day to all of you. And to all a good night. Just kidding. You're not listening to this at night. Some of you at least aren't. Uh, I, I would say that Columbus Day is not one that we should just give up to the other side. We shouldn't accept what the liberals are saying. The leftists are saying now. I believe there's a movement afoot to call it Indigenous Peoples Day. I would prefer that we just celebrate the holiday as it was initially intended, which is the uh, discovery of America by the European world. And as we know, there's a lot of history that's very messy, that's violent and bad and oppressive. And that's true of all human beings all over the world for all of history. So that's nothing particularly new or distinct about Columbus Day. I wonder if there'll be any protests here at Columbus Circle. Who would have thought years ago that that would be a place, a lightning rod for the social justice warriors, the tearing down of of history as we have known it and the replacement of it with narratives all focused on oppression and as i've explained to you uh in different shows at different times what you won't hear are the the leftists who want to argue for the replacement of columbus day with indigenous people's day you won't hear a discussion about well okay can we discuss the oppression of native peoples in the new what we call the new world by other native peoples that the aztec empire for example which cortez through all kinds of scheming and machinations was able to overturn with a few hundred men. Uh, The Aztec empire was built on slavery and oppression and mass murder, human sacrifice. Do we, do we talk about it? No, that's just, that's all fine. I guess. Cause you know, those were the traditions of the time. You won't hear much discussion of that. All those things are true, by the way, you also won't hear much about the uh, Comanche, for example, in, what is now the Midwestern United States and the the Great Plains area and their willingness to sometimes exterminate neighboring tribes and take all their stuff and all their land. You won't hear much about that. You know, this is this is where if we're going to do the history, let's really do the history. If we're going to have a discussion about what used to happen in the world, then let's really have it and not just pick and choose things that are favorable to a leftist narrative of European colonialism and oppression Uh, And and never talk about any of the good stuff either. This is like when people complain about America. And I always want to say, well, maybe also thank us for computers, uh, most of the major technological advancements of the last 75 years or so, uh, and also the greatest period of human prosperity and relative peace in not just the modern world. If you're going to argue simply for material prosperity, More people lifted out of poverty in the last 50 years than in all of human history before that because of a system that America is the leading force for. Capitalism, baby. That's right. 
good things, good things. How do we go from Columbus to capitalism? That's just the magic of the Buck Sexton show. That's what we do here. But maybe I'll go back to Columbus later on. Maybe we'll talk. It would be fun to do an entire series on Cortez and the Conquistadors. I've mentioned this before. The history shows of the great battles of Cross and Crescent, uh, like Lepanto and Malta and others. We'll return to that in the Shields High series we do here on the on the show or as a part of the show. But I also want to do a whole series on the Conquistadors. Amazing stuff. Uh, so much that's missed in history class, too. How many How many Americans even know that the... I would mention the uh, Plains, what are known as the Plains Native Americans, formerly when I was in high school referred to as Plains Indians, but that's, of course, not the term, not the preferred nomenclature anymore, uh, that they got horses from the Spanish conquistadors, that they did not have domesticated horses in the New World. And in fact, one of the great advantages that Cortez and other Spanish conquistadors in particular had uh, were the horses that they brought with them as part of that. Uh, military conquest. Steel, gunpowder, horses. You have that, the other side doesn't. It's usually going to be a better day for you than for them. But now shall we turn to the uh, the news of the day, my friends. Oh, we have so much to do, and as is often the case, so little time to get through it. The best single thing that I read all weekend, I spent a lot of time over the weekend reading, as I tend to do, as I'm sure many of you do. Um, but the best thing that I read all weekend was from Matt Taibbi. Now, Mr. Taibbi is a a man of the left. I, I wouldn't say that I could speak to exactly how he would self-describe or what would be the proper designation for him on the left. Uh, man of the left. But does engage in what you could call traditional journalism, meaning he finds out stuff and presents information that is new to people. And I always have a, a respect for that. And I don't mean... Leaks from powerful people in one political party in government, for example. And then the, the pretense that that is the real journalism. You know, all these people who are, you know, CNN White House correspondents, they're doing such hard work. No, they're just taking gossip that's handed to them by, by officials and then printing news stories based on it. They're not digging and finding. And I mean, in general, it's fun to speak in generalities because at least then you can always get out of it when someone challenges you. Uh, but the, the truth is that Taibbi sometimes does very, very good work. He's best known, I think, or at least for me, perhaps he's best known for being the guy who popularized the term uh, face-sucking vampire squid in reference to the Goldman Sachs Investment Bank and what happened after the uh, financial, financial, what do we call it, the, the Great Recession, the financial downturn of 2008, 2009, and how Goldman Sachs was bailed out 100 cents on the dollar. All of its counterparty risk taken up by the government. Hmm. 100 cents on the dollar. No haircut for Goldman, huh? Lehman went. Dunzo. Bear Stearns. But Goldman Sachs didn't lose anything. In fact, made a ton of money. Had some of its best years after the, the collapse. It's good to be very tied in with the federal government. A very bad economic lesson. A very bad financial lesson for this country, unfortunately. But. Perhaps we'll return to that another day. But he wrote a piece about the Taibbi, uh, wrote a piece in Rolling Stone called We're in a Permanent Coup. Americans might soon wish they had just waited their way out of the Trump era. Yeah, you don't say. Uh, he goes into some of the time that he had spent, particularly in the Soviet Union as a journalist, as a reporter there, and how there were just different periods when different moments when a one group of you know military generals and advisors 
would say, all right, we're just going to seize we're just going to seize power in Moscow. And then it was famously at one point a a race between uh, between Gorbachev and some of the, I'm sorry, Yeltsin, rather. Ah, whatever. One of those Russian guys. <laughs> um, the the uh, the effort to. Oh, no, it was. I'm sorry. It was first Gorbachev. And then later there was an effort against Yeltsin. Uh, different coups. Um, they placed Mikhail Gorbachev under arrest and attempted to seize Moscow in 1991. Boris Yeltsin's crew, quote, drove to the Russian White House in ordinary cars, beating KGB coup plotters who were trying to reach the seat of Russian government back in 1991 in armored vehicles. A key moment came when one of Yeltsin's men, Alexander Rutskoy, who two years later would himself lead a coup against Yeltsin, prevailed upon a major in a tank unit to defy KGB orders and turn on the criminals. We have long been spared this madness in America, Taibbi writes. Our head counting ceremony was election day. We did it every four years. In the Trump era, that's all over. You see, this is the necessary context. This is the necessary backstory for everything that you're seeing now about the Ukraine phone call and Russia collusion and Trump paying off Stormy Daniels and campaign, all of this. This is the forever coup. This is the effort by the establishment in politics, in media, and yes, within the federal bureaucracy itself, which is now the de facto fourth branch of our government. This is their effort to undo the 2016 election, but also and in many ways, more importantly, to prevent this from ever happening again. This was not supposed to happen. They did not think it would happen. Remember, back in 2016, the belief of The New York Times and many others going into Election Day was over 90 percent certainty that Hillary Clinton hello, would be president of the United States. That was a charming Hillary hello for you, by the way, in case you were wondering, in case you missed her. My Elizabeth Warren is getting to the point now where I might just start doing Elizabeth Warren for you on the air and see if you can tell the difference. We're getting to that level. But they thought Hillary was going to win. They were certain she was going to win. And then when she didn't, they had a mental breakdown, a mass mental breakdown. And ever since then, they've been trying to find some way to engineer some way to end the Trump presidency, prevent a second term and also prevent another interloper usurper not an interloper because he cheated in the election although they've tried that routine because he's not supposed to be the president they're not okay with this and what's even more frightening to the deep state and the political establishment which does include no small share of republicans by the way what's even more frightening to them is that president trump has done despite what you're hearing right now Uh, A good job. The economy is very strong. We have not been hit with a mass casualty international terrorist attack. We are not escalating a war. We're not taking dozens or hundreds of U.S. casualties a month. We're not starting a war. We are not bowing down, in some cases, previously, as we saw, literally bowing, as the president was fond of doing when it was President Obama, uh, bowing to foreign leaders all over the world. We are pursuing the interests of the American people and doing so unapologetically. And the results are in. And the results do not leave enough leeway for the deep state and the left 
to argue that they would do, or at least to convince, I should say, they'll certainly argue, to convince people that they would do a better job. Really? You believe that Bernie Sanders would do a better job as president of the United States? Who, who can really think that and be serious afterwards? That Joe Biden? Oh, we'll get to Biden and Hunter Biden and that whole mess. The media's own goal, as they would say in soccer, or football, if you don't like calling, you know, it's soccer. Uh, but they scored on themselves. They didn't mean to by bringing up the whole Ukraine situation because what Hunter Biden did is wrong, is gross. Maybe it's not illegal, but it's clearly influence peddling and influence selling. And anybody who says otherwise is a liar or isn't paying attention. But the forever coup is, or as Taibi writes about it, the permanent coup is upon us. They will not relent. They will not accept this circumstance. And even if Trump wins a second term, by the way, they will continue to try and oust him from office. They believe some of these talking points you hear that he is a clear and present danger to our democracy, a republic, but they like to call it a democracy. They believe that anything that they have to do, anything that would work against this president is well within uh, well within their justification. They'll just find a way to say, sure, if it hurts Trump, if it helps us, we'll do it. Why aren't they? Why aren't the leftists, the Democrats, the Comeyists, the Brennanists having a, an armored column on the way to the White House? Because it wouldn't work. You have to start asking yourself the question, though, if they thought it would work, would they do it? How far are we from being in a country where when you have the former heads of the intelligence community under the previous administration saying the current president is a traitor, as they have done many times. The current government is run by a pawn of the Russians who has sold us out. How far are we from some members of the deep state, at least considering what we saw in the Soviet Union in the 1990s and have seen in so many other countries? An actual forcible seizure of power. Now, you may say, Buck, that's insane. That's crazy. That would never happen. To that, I would point out that Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is a radical, has openly discussed Congress considering arresting people who do not, arresting White House employees or former White House employees who do not show up to be a part of Congress's impeachment inquiry charade. That's right. Seizing people taking away their freedom, arresting them because they will not do this maniacal left-wing Democrat majority in Congress's bidding. Once you start arresting some people because they do what the White House says and not what the Congress says, where does that stop and start? What are the outer boundaries of that? How far can that go? And how far are we from a country where people, not just in secret, plot to overturn a presidency, but decide the moment is upon us, get in the cars, race to the White House, we're going to seize power. How far away is that really from the thoughts of some of these leftists? I think it's fair to ask. I think it's fair to wonder. 
it's definitely getting closer. I just want to cut through it all and keep it very real with people about what we're up against. We have homophobic psychopaths running the United States government today. That's the reality. We have a secretary of state, as was mentioned, that believes that gay people are sinners based on who they are. If Mike Pence, God bless him, ended up in the White House sitting behind that desk in the Oval Office, he would have us all in concentration camps hoping to pray away the gay. That's what we're actually up against. You know, I've talked about the gay agenda, and when I was growing up, people were terrified of me pushing this gay agenda. Listen, the gay agenda is to survive until tomorrow. And you ask LGBT people of color, you ask trans women of color what that's like, and they're not so much concerned about what Joy Reid might have said 12 years Years ago on a blog uh, that has evolved now into really an alliance with us. They're worried about what's happening right now on Pennsylvania Avenue, and they're wondering why the media didn't rain down a firestorm on these people, these homophobic psychopaths who are derailing the conversation, turning back the clock on everything we've worked so hard on. So I guess I'm just here today to implore the viewers to please stay focused on I mean, what's I, actually I, Amazing, by the way, uh, that, right that was all played us. on national television, on cable news, on MSNBC. A guest without any pushback whatsoever from the host, without any, hey, maybe that's a little, that, that this White House is homophobic psychopaths who want to put people in concentration camps. And then they turn around and want to lecture us. Then the leftists want to say Trump's rhetoric is out of control. Trump's rhetoric could lead to violence. Well, does this does this person who is being given a major platform on the premier leftist network, MSNBC, sorry, CNN, does saying that the president is a psychopath who wants to put people in concentration camps, does that seem extreme to anyone? What does the left say these days that doesn't feel like it's extreme? No, the Trump rallies are Trump's, his, his strong supporters. I mean, lock her up. I mean, all the things he says, all the vicious, mean things he says, they love it. There are these people in this country. They're good Americans. Otherwise, they'll probably give you the shirt off their back. They'll help you if you need. But they have this fixation. They want to return this country to the white Christian country that they believe it should be again. They don't want the diversity. And they follow him for this. But they're not the country. We are diverse people. We are good and strong because of that. And we're going to come back to that, I assure you. Oh, yes. Let's hear from Sam Donaldson, who is not very smart who is not very impressive, but existed in a media environment where if you were the guy with the hairpiece on television getting to sound like this, the whole country had to listen to you because you were a news anchor. They love to do this. They love to bring, I think that was on C. yeah, it was on CNN. Uh, and I'm just playing this. So we're going to get a whole, a whole swath, a whole range of left-wing crazy here as this forever coup continues on. Anything to stop Trump. On the one hand, they'll say, well, but Trump is so mean. I know there was some video that was shown at a conference that has all this violence in it. And now they're saying Trump isn't he, Trump had nothing to do with it. But they're going to say Trump's inspiring violence. And yet the things that are said about this president on a daily basis are, are, are insane. These, these people are nuts. I, I guarantee you. I mean, I've I've, I've interviewed Mike Pence. Uh, I, I've interviewed his daughter. I mean, I've met I've met I'm friends with people on his staff. Mike Pence is like the last person on earth who would put anybody in a concentration camp. All right, he's an incredibly nice, decent, 
considerate human being. And anyone who knows him knows that. I'm talking about putting people in concentration camps. But how crazy is that rhetoric compared to, say, what AOC and other Democrats would say about what's going on, what was going on at our southern border with the detainment of people who were coming to the country illegally? Concentration camps. I'll never forget when the former governor of Michigan, when I was in the Bill Maher show, I was trying to have a discussion about how Democrats are now for open borders, which is insane, but they basically are. They do not believe in any real enforcement of immigration laws. And Jennifer Granholm turned on on HBO in front of millions of people watching and yelled, kids in cages, kids in cages, as though that was a refutation of what I was saying, which is that the Democratic Party is absolutely insane on the issue of immigration. Now, it's indefensible. Because they won't even defend what they want. They'll just say it. And when you push them on it, they'll yell kids in cages in your face. It's like arguing with toddlers a lot of the time. And as we know, Democrats will use children for the purposes of advancing arguments that are intellectually indefensible. But emotionally, the resonance is what they're, they're looking for, for that above and beyond anything else. We were hearing there from Sam Donaldson, just the, the very kind of political analysis you would expect from somebody who's not used to having to know anything and not used to being challenged. Oh, a White House correspondent for CBS or ABC or wherever he was. Um, Trump supporters want to, quote, return this country to the white Christian country they believe it should be again. They don't want the diversity. Uh, this is just a repeat of, OK, so everyone who supports Trump is, is racist, right? That's what they always say. And then they wonder why we won't listen to them when they then want to lecture us on the best way to tackle climate change or uh, what we're going to do with health care, because they're not willing to make real arguments without always attacking the basic decency and morality of the other side. Sam Donaldson, you know, CNN actually will have on. I love this. They'll have on Dan Rather sometimes to talk about journalism, a man who exists from an era uh, in which. If he were not the luckiest man imaginable, he I mean, this guy was being beamed into the homes of millions of Americans who really had no, there were only three choices when this guy was making his career. So all you needed were the execs at CBS to be like, well, this guy looks and sounds the part. He's a newsman. Uh, these guys are not impressive people. But CNN still clinging to this fiction that journalism used to be this great and noble endeavor and it's been corrupted. No, now we just know who these people were. And thanks to social media in particular, we have an understanding of just how partisan they are, what kind of activists they really are. Sam Donaldson. Oh, this is what I think about Republicans, Trump supporters. Thanks, buddy. But, uh, oh, we want a little, a little more crazy. I mean, this is, remember, these are the people that are telling you there's not an effort at a coup this isn't where they're not going to do anything to get rid of Trump before the election can even happen. And, oh, it's Trump's rhetoric that's so troubling. Here's the former national security advisor. And, oh, we're going to get into Syria. Don't worry. We're going to talk about any Obama administration's foreign policy, which now a lot of people in the media are conveniently forgetting about. But here's former uh, uh, former national security advisor to Obama, Susan Rice, just on how terrible Trump is. It's appalling. And it's so much worse than I imagined every day. Uh, a lie, a disparagement, um, and a, a trashing of the institutions and the norms that we all believe have held us together. And what's so extraordinary is it's all about him. I mean, we talk about foreign policy. 
And he says his doctrine is America first. What I think we're seeing is it's really me first. And that's how he is governing. Everything is about him. And so the notion that you could attack a whistleblower with legal protections in our system, which is set up to enable transparency and to guard against precisely the kinds of abuses he's perpetrating and to assume that that's therefore it, he's called it worse than that. He's called it close to being a spy yeah. treason. In effect, he's not just a whistleblower, but the people who the whistleblower talked to in the yeah. White House. So he is arrogating to himself uh, the the the. The institutions of the state. He, he is, is. He, he is the I, state. Yeah. I am the state. Right. That, that's what we're seeing now. It's that. That is not an exaggeration. That's how serious it is. Yes. Yes. That's. It's not an exaggeration. L'état c'est moi. I am the state. Louis the Fourteenth famously said. And Trump is. Oh, he's exactly the same. Maybe they can do another think piece at the New York Times. I think they did one about two weeks ago. That Trump's not going to leave office when he loses. These. This is the stupidity that we all have to live with. That, that they can say any, any level of hysteria, Trump's putting people in concentration camps, Trump is a dictator, Trump is a fascist, Trump isn't going to leave office. This is mainstream. That was Anderson Cooper. Oh, beloved, beloved by Democrats. A, a left-wing, a left-wing uh, so-called journalist who, when you look at what's really gone on at CNN, all that's happened is that the mask has dropped at CNN, and we now know that this is what it has always been. They're just unable to hide it very well, which is a left-wing propaganda organ. But uh, the, the stuff about how Trump is now every bit is, he's really monarchical, right? He's maniacal, he's monarchical. Think of a crazy word to say about this president. They will say it. So then I would ask you, when we talk about a deep state, and she was discussing there, Susan Rice was discussing Trump's feelings about people within the government who are supposed to be working for the implementation of, uh, impl- implementation of Trump policies. There have been illegal leaks. There have been efforts to collude behind the scenes for partisan reasons against this president. So how should he react to that? You should think that that's fine. Did you ever see anything like this during the Obama administration? Were there any government officials who were, keep in mind, people like McCabe breaking the law, people like Comey breaking regulations, all to settle a score with the president? Of course not. There are just some things that they, the left, do that we don't do. The left likes cancel culture. Conservatives, the right, we don't. Culturally speaking, we're not into it. The left likes boycotts. Conservatives don't. And as somebody who used to be a federal government employee working at the Central Intelligence Agency, I can tell you that conservatives also just suck it up and deal with it when there is somebody who is at the head of government that we don't like, because we have this thing called an election. And the election will determine whether or not this person stays in power. It is really such a slight. It is so uh, unfair, unfounded, when you hear these Democrats and these libs claim that Trump may not leave office. Trump supporters wouldn't we would not be OK with that. That's such a horror. It's like saying that we'd be OK with Trump putting people in concentration camps. They tell me they say these things about Trump that are so awful that are going to happen. And I end up looking and this happens frequently in my discussions with increasingly shrill and hysterical liberals. They think that the people that vote for Trump would allow the things that they're worried that would happen. It's never the stuff that has happened, really. 
Uh, it's it's always the the story that they tell themselves about what would happen unless we have the destruction of the Trump presidency. It can't even be allowed to go to the next election because I think they realize that if there is another election and Trump loses, let's just say, in a sense, that will legitimize it. Will, he will have had four years in office. He will have been the president. And if there's a peaceful transfer of power, all of that whining and crying about how Trump would he's a dictator, he's going to leave office. It'll be shown to be exactly what we already know it is, which is the hysteria of people who are emotionally and psychologically damaged because after eight years of an Obama administration that catered to the to every cultural and psychological whim of the progressive left in this country. After that, now you have a president who doesn't just go politically in the opposite direction, but speaks about these issues differently and calls out those who are used to being able to get their way and say whatever they want and just hear just hear clapping. Just one standing ovation after another. No, there is another side to these discussions that happen in public. There is another another voice out there that should be heard. If what Susan Rice and Sam Donaldson and whoever that was on MSNBC said were true about the president, why does half the country still support him? Because we're all so evil. We don't care about our fellow human beings. We don't care about it. What is what is more likely? That the terrible things that the left keep claiming are going to happen never happen because they're hysterical and they've lost it or that half the country just doesn't care about America or their fellow Americans anymore. I think we all know the answer, but unfortunately, liberals, they're never going to stop. Do you think that the Democrats will impeach you? Well, I think it's a uh, hoax. And I think if they do, they're going to suffer at the ballot box because uh, the only thing impachable is the fraud. I'm not that saying Adam legitimate. Schiff, I'm not saying uh, legitimate. I'm on the saying, American people. Do you because think he made up my conversation. He made a conversation that didn't right. exist. He never thought in a million years that I was going to release the real conversation. And when it did, the whistleblower turned out to be Totally inaccurate, meaning you can make your own determination. They say a lot of things about the whistleblower. They protect him. I think we have to find out who the whistleblower is that would give all this false information. And also, uh, Adam Schiff, something has to be done. How can somebody stand up before Congress and make a speech about my conversation? Which is Word for word reading my conversation. And it's a fraud. He made it up himself. Well, there's no accountability for any fraud against this president. Anything that is done by anyone on the left to hurt Trump is excused, is in fact encouraged. It goes beyond just being excused. People view this as a, uh, a noble, a noble calling, sliming, smearing, attacking this president with falsehoods, whatever you have to do. It's all part of the hashtag resistance. It's like my uh, friend over at the Wall Street Journal, Kim Strassel, Resistance at All Costs. That's her book. It's totally true. We should have Kim on, by the way. Maybe we'll have Kim on later this week. But they'll do anything in order to resist Trump, and anything is therefore justifiable to resist Trump. And that's a very important distinction that we should all be, uh, we should all be aware of uh, going forward. And if you looked at this from the other side, if you looked at this from the other perspective, I keep hearing how... Obama would have been impeached 100 times over if he had done the things that Trump has done. And to this I say, well, if that's true, why do Democrats even pretend that they shouldn't impeach the president? 
You know, every day it's a different story. It's a different narrative. Well, we're not sure if we should impeach Trump. We absolutely should impeach Trump, impeach him for this, impeach him for that. What about proposing a legislation that would do something that would make the lives of the American people better? I mean, Democrats spend all their time with Trump hatred and so very little time on anything constructive. I think it's because when you look at some of the policies, what, what are the big ideas that they are putting forward? The Green New Deal? Wow. Single payer, Medicare for all. These are things that are fantasies, even if a Democrat won the election. That's the big that's the big secret here. That's really the the part of this that they don't want to get into. Even if they were in power, they would not do the things that they say they want to do. So then why pretend? Well, because they set the goalpost even further and then they'll get closer to it. Right. Oh, we want the Green New Deal, but we'll we'll accept cap and trade or you know we want the single payer but we'll accept a massive expansion of obamacare that creates a creates a specific public option that's what they're trying to do that's what the plan is here oh by the way lee zeldin is just saying hey how about some rights for republicans from the democrats in congress who are always talking about how trump is destroying institutions trump is eliminating all the guardrails of the guardrails of our democracy. These guys all think that someone's going to be inscribing their words and in marble in a, on a, near a statue in, in D.C. Uh, play uh, 18, if you would, my good man. Let's hear from Representative Zeldin on this. How about the Democrats provide the Republicans and the president the same exact rights that they would demand if everything was reversed? You're talking about an impeachment of the president of the United States. And everything is going to happen behind closed doors, offering no protection whatsoever, no transparency, no accountability, no due process. Substantively, you should know every single word that we just heard. But instead, you heard none of it. The American public heard none of it because Chairman Schiff instead chooses to put his own spin to it. And that's outrageous. And the American public are fed up with what they are watching. It is disgusting, isn't it? Oh, let's have an impeachment of the president. But all of the testimony right now happens in secret. Let's have secret testimony. But then we'll trust Adam Schiff, who is a liar, to be the one who translates like he did before. Remember? Oh, I'm going to pretend that I'm reading a transcript of the president's speech. That's just something I made up. The words are not the words, my friends. The evidence is not the evidence. This is a Kafka-esque nightmare, one that they're dragging not just the president of the United States into, but the entirety of the American people, which is the plan. That's what they're doing. That's why we are, in fact, in the permanent coup, or as I'm calling it, to the forever coup. We are in the midst of it. You might as well understand that. Beat him like a drum if I get the nomination. (laughs) And here's the deal. And you go to, you go to... Three foreign governments, not just all about me, three foreign governments and ask them to come in and interfere in the sovereignty, the sacredness of the American electoral process. Come on. Come on. This is outrageous. How if, in fact, the House doesn't move and let the facts fall where they may, then what what is the next unethical president if we elect another one? What's that say they can do? What's that say? What's going to happen? They have to know there's consequences. 
I may be the last guy to publicly call for impeachment, but I'm the only reason there is impeachment going on. Because uh, this, uh, this president has, I've written extensively about how this president, our democracy is literally at stake. It's not a joke. This is the most corrupt administration in modern American history. Maybe ever, but in modern American history. Democracy at stake. Most corrupt administration in modern American history. I wonder how Blue Collar Joe would define that one. I love this line, democracy at stake. And yet they're the ones who don't want to have an election. They're the ones that want to avert the choice of the American people from uh, happening in 2020. They, They want to take us in a different direction than that. Why not just make all the effort right now, all the energy, just focus it on beating the president the next election? And I know that, they, as I've said, they'll complain and say, oh, but he won't leave office and he's a fascist. I mean, that's just stupid. People who say that are morons. But there are a lot of people out there are saying it, very famous, very prominent ones. That's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because, one, it's just a fantasy that liberals tell themselves to make them feel better about the crazy stuff they say. But also, the Trump supporters wouldn't allow that. Look, he loses the election. He loses the election. He's out. We have the system we have. We are the ones who respect the system. The leftists are the ones who don't. Our democracy is at stake. This comes after, what was it, about uh, the first year after the election. All you saw were these think pieces, think pieces, which is glorifying them. These left-wing hacks all coming up with ways to explain how the popular vote should really matter more. We should eliminate the Electoral College. We should put more Supreme Court justices on the Supreme Court. They're willing to completely change the system and to reimagine it and then and then remake it in the image of their own power. And yet they turn around and lecture us about how Trump is a threat to democracy, really. When is it too much? When is it too silly, too absurd for anybody to have to take this seriously anymore well unfortunately i guess we have no choice because this is what the other major political party in this country has embraced uh the fact that joe biden admits that he's the reason impeachment's going on is interesting what about all the all that stuff in the Mueller report that the 10 possible instances of corruption was that was that not enough for impeachment i'm confused i was told at the time that that was more than enough for impeachment of course the American people didn't really buy it, though. Oh, so they had to come up with another, another soft coup, another effort to undo the results of the 2016 election. And so now they've settled on this. Somebody working with Adam Schiff behind the scenes. It, it checks off so many of the boxes foreign interference in the election, quid pro quo corruption. Oh, Trump is the worst. And yet they still have no evidence of this quid pro quo. They have no evidence that any action whatsoever was taken in response to a phone call between the president of the United States and a counterpart in which he's allowed to say what he wants to say about corruption in that country, that it affects Hunter Biden. is just an unfortunate situation for Democrats. Sorry. The same Democrat party who are apparently still fine with Hillary Clinton's DNC paying for paying a foreigner to run around and ask foreigners for information for dirt on the now president of the United States, then candidate Donald Trump. So I, I just would wonder, I would like to ask, I'd like to just just dig in for a moment into at what point do we get to talk about the foreign interference in the election that they paid for? 
and used our own intelligence community to launder the dossier to create this phony pretext for an investigation of Trump campaign figures. When do we get to feel outraged about FISA warrants against Carter Page? When do we get to feel like Papadopoulos being the start, the the excuse for the start of a full field FBI investigation is absurd and also a massive abuse of power? Oh, I think soon, soon, I hope, if the U.S. attorney for the state of Connecticut, Durham, is able to release his report and we see what really happened there. I think Democrats are also trying to counterbalance what they must know is going to look terrible for anybody who's being honest about the situation when that report about FISA abuse and all the things that were done to this president by people in the government, in the Democratic Party, in the media, the lies, the scheming, the plotting, the misleading of the American people, the massive amount of time spent on just nonsense. The special counsel, the special counsel was a joke. Should never have happened. If the FBI and the DOJ want to look into Russian interference, God bless, go for it. Oh, how many Russians have been brought to justice as a result? I think they are pressing charges against Maria Butina. Oh, I hope we all sleep better at night now knowing Maria Butina is not going to single-handedly throw the next election. These people are loons. Loons. But I also recall that we were told that Joe Biden did nothing wrong. Oh, the media. Oh, CNN just so... So sanctimonious about this. Joe Biden did nothing wrong in Ukraine. How could they know? Were they out there? Were they, do they speak Ukrainian? Were they meeting with Ukrainian officials behind the scenes? No. They just go with the talking points that they're told. They have no idea what Joe Biden did or didn't do in Ukraine. In fact, really, nobody in this country does fully because Ukraine's incredibly corrupt and the investigation, at least allegedly, was tainted or shut down early. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We should find out. I thought we wanted more facts. I thought this was all about getting to the bottom of it, finding out more information. Ah, yes. But uh, then we have Joe Biden, for example, being or telling us all that nothing bad happened in Ukraine. But Hunter Biden just stepped down from the board of the Chinese company. Remember, he got over a billion dollars from China after flying to China on Air Force Two with his dad. Who's going to give Hunter Biden a billion dollars? Guy couldn't last six months as a public affairs officer in the Navy without hitting positive on a drug test, I believe, for cocaine. You're going to give this guy a billion dollars based on what? Oh, based on the fact that his dad's vice president. That's right. That's why you're going to give a billion dollars to a company that he's very involved in. Uh, And that's not even Ukraine, where he was getting $50,000 a month to be on a board seat of a company that he had no expertise in whatsoever. I have to ask the question, what will this Chinese company do without Hunter Biden's considerable expertise in nothing. I just wonder if they'll be able to make it through the next quarter. I guess they'll be okay. So on the one hand, we're told nothing bad happened, but also now Hunter Biden is stepping down from this Chinese company and Joe Biden's telling us that this would not happen again. Play 17. No one in my family will have an office in the White House. will sit in meetings as if they're a cabinet member will in fact have any business relationship with anyone that relates to a foreign corporation or a foreign country. Period. Period. End of story. And what I'm not going to let you all do is take the focus off the problem. No one, no one has asserted my son did a single thing wrong. No one has asserted 
that I have done anything wrong except a lying president. That's the only thing. That's the focus. Well, actually, a lot of people have asserted it, so that's that's not true. <laughs> a lot of people think that there was uh, more than just a little bit of smoke around Hunter Biden's payoffs in Ukraine. It's not just the president. In fact, people broke the story before the president even knew about it. But I, I will say this because we keep it real here. Can I defend the uh, the giving of very senior positions in the White House to family members that this administration has engaged in? I cannot. I will not defend it. I cannot defend it. I do not agree with it. So, so Joe's fighting back in an area where he's got he's got some room to run. No question about it. We are not some third world kleptocracy. We should not have family members that are not elected officials that are just being given very senior roles in government. It's it's not a good look. It's not right. I do not agree with it. Come what may. Uh, but that's not what we're really talking about, is it, with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden? Oh, no. What we're talking about there is that uh, there was a payoff going on here from companies tied to foreign governments that were very much interested in currying favor of the then, then vice president of the United States. So Hunter Biden steps down and we're told now from this Chinese company, oh, there's no problem here. Well, of course there's a problem. That's why he's stepping down. I didn't do anything wrong, but I promise I'll never do it again is a really interesting place for the vice president and his son to be in right now. And that is where they are. So I guess this has been more complicated for the Democrats, this latest effort to um, do, this latest effort to derail the Trump presidency. Oh, wait, there's one more. Here. Joe Biden wants you to know, even though his son is stepping down. There's no conflict, no conflict at all. Play clip 14, if you would. Mark, the producer, my son and I do not and never have, nor did my son, the attorney general and I talk about their policies at all. So there would never be any conflict that I ever, in fact, influenced because I didn't know, period. I've never discussed, never discussed this with my son while I was vice president or since being vice president, except in the recent past when I was told by his lawyers that he is going to be issuing a statement. Okay, let's let's examine that denial for one second. First of all, we have the photo of Biden and his son golfing with a Burisma executive. So, yeah, I don't think anyone should buy that, uh, that, that he they never talked about anything having to do with any of this. But then beyond that, I would just want to know, uh, we really think that this that Joe Biden, Hunter Biden never talked about Ukraine while his son's in the board of this company getting fifty thousand dollars a month. That just didn't come up. Your dad's the vice president. You decide to take this board seat. You're not going to talk to your dad about, and maybe not even talk talk about this in a nefarious fashion. Hey, dad, uh, you think that they're actually going to, what do you heard from the prosecutor? Are they going to be tearing down this company? Are we going to see some executives getting fired or getting arrested? I mean, I, I'd be curious about that if I were on the board of Burisma, Ukrainian natural gas company. But is it is it feasible? Is it plausible that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden never talked about this? Of course not. So if it's not plausible, then what does that mean about Hunter Bi- or Joe Biden's denial here? Well, it means he's lying. Would it surprise anybody if Joe Biden was lying? No. Joe Biden is a third-tier hack Democrat who just happened to get lucky because the Obama administration needed somebody who wasn't a challenge to Obama's supremacy, right? Couldn't have Hillary be the vice president. And, hmm. Well, what about the, the next step then? Oh, I guess they had to find somebody like Joe Biden. And that's that's and it's only because of his 
connection to Obama that he's even really a national level figure in the first place. This guy's deeply unimpressive. He's accomplished nothing. Strikes me as quite strange that we even have to have this discussion that Joe Biden should be the front runner for the Democrats. The truth is the Democrats should be embarrassed that he is their front runner, but I guess they're just not. They, they choose they choose not to be until they have another front runner, which is going to be any day now. I think she has been a model diplomat uh, and deserved better than the shabby treatment she received uh, from this president uh, and from the secretary of state. Uh, so I'm, I think we're all deeply uh, in her debt uh, for representing the country so well around the world and for so long. Um, I also want to express uh, my appreciation for not just what a great champion uh, she was of the rule of law in Ukraine, but also the respect she has for the rule of law here at home. Well, she may be a wonderful woman. I don't know her, but she, she may be very much a wonderful woman. Uh, if you remember the phone call I had with the president, the new president, he didn't speak favorably, but I, I just don't know her. She may be a wonderful woman. So that's this, uh, the uh, Marie Yavanovich, who's uh, what amb- was ambassador or involved in foreign relations with Ukraine. I think she was a former ambassador there, but she's now one of the people who's testified behind closed doors about the whole Ukraine phone call. I, I would just note that we've seen this play out too many times to forget about what really happens here, which is that the media and the Democrats build up any government official who is useful for the purposes of Trump bashing becomes the single most incredible, most ethical, most amazing person to have ever worked in the government. And then invariably some time passes and we find out, oh, no, that person was either not nearly that impressive, not nearly that important, even in the issue at hand. Or to take it even a little bit further, the person was an anti-Trump partisan. The person was a a hack had a an axe to grind with the president of the United States. And therefore, all of the testimony that was given and all of the things that we were told have to be looked at in a very different light. So I would just note that uh, this is what we will be told again. This is the situation we'll be put in once more. Anyone who is speaking negatively about the president on this issue of Ukraine, you will be told is the most amazing, most incredible public servant to have ever done anything. And the people who speak in at some level in a a defense of Trump, uh, we'll be told are hacks who can't be trusted. They're MAGA hat wearing partisans and they'll be. Oh, and by the way, this also has the effect of signaling to folks who are going to be testifying about one thing or another in front of Adam Schiff and his committee that you want to be someone that The New York Times is writing about as a hero of the republic. Or do you want to be somebody who is part of Trump's web of fascism and corruption and destruction and all this other stuff? So there you have it. Um, By the way, I do want to see. I just see this now that uh, there was. A uh, Saturday Night Live sketch or this is a total digression, but Saturday Night Live sketch over the weekend about the origins of the Oscar the Grouch movie. It was one of the better. I would recommend you check it out. It was one of the better things I've seen on SNL in quite a while. Uh, but they made, there also was a reference on, um, I think it was on SNL, to The Irishman, which is a Martin Scorsese movie, which is another gangster. Does this guy only make gangster movies? Why 
Why is it? Is this is this like Goodfellas but with Irish guys? Is that what this is? The Irishman? Uh, I I gotta say, I know people. This is gonna get me. I'm gonna get booed for this, but I think Scorsese's overrated. I'm just gonna say it. I thought Gangs in New York was a crappy movie, and you know some of the gangster movies he's made. Yeah, they were they were good in their day and everything, but. Like I'm gonna, The Departed is very watchable. It's very entertaining, but it's kind of a ridiculous movie, especially the ending. It's just, just come on, it's a mess. Um, and I do want to see the Joker. I may go see Joker this week. In fact, I'm already, I'm already thinking maybe I'll go see the Joker on Thursday, so I'd have an opportunity to talk to you about it. This is something that you, you should always remember. Whenever the critics now absolutely, just intensely hate a movie that people are going to see, chances are it's a worthwhile thing to see because critics now view themselves not as uh, people that are trying to assess the value and the impact of an artistic endeavor. They are there to be the gatekeepers and the custodians of the ultimate wokeness. They're the ones to make sure that they're enforcing social justice orthodoxy on the rest of us. But I hear that the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix is good, so I want to try to see that this week. Maybe I'll be able to give you guys my review of the Joker here in the show as soon as Friday. Uh, but when I come back, I want to talk to you about uh, Syria. So just give me a sec. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. I don't think our soldiers should be there for the next 50 years guarding a border between Turkey and Syria when we can't guard our own borders at home. I don't think so. A lot of people very upset right now about what's going on in Syria with the uh, Turkish incursion. Uh, There have been casualties. Uh, I think last I saw about a dozen or so. Syrian Kurds, members of the YPG, this uh, this militia, which really comes from the PKK, which is, in fact, a designated terrorist group and a separatist group that wants a Turkey, a Kurdish homeland in what is now northern Syria and, and, and southern Turkey. Uh, people are using this, though, first and foremost, as an opportunity to bash the president, I'm seeing a lot of people who know very little about reality in the Middle East about military occupation, about counterinsurgency, about counterterrorism, who all of a sudden have all the answers in Syria. So I, I want to take a, I, not just a contrarian point of view, although I think that's important, I want to take a realist perspective on what is going on here, because there are conflicting emotions. I do have a, and I'm honest with you about this, I have a fondness for the Kurdish people. I think Turkey's not an ally. I think Turkey's not really a friend. I think Turkey should be kicked out of NATO. So I've got a lot of thoughts on this stuff. I think the Turks have not been that helpful in Afghanistan, have not been that helpful in Iraq, have not been that or unhelpful in Syria. Just kick the doors wide open. Let all the jihadists filter into Syria to fight against the Assad regime. Turkey, in many ways, southern Turkey and the border with Syria uh, became something akin to the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan during the fight against the Mujahideen. And in this case, we're talking about Al-Qaeda guys filtering into Syria to fight against the Assad regime. So there were some very, uh, very short-sighted decisions made, I think, in the, by Erdogan and the Turkish leadership. Erdogan is an Islamist. He's a authoritarian. He's not a friend of the United States. He's just not. And I think there's not nearly enough 
attention being paid to the fact that we we cannot control everything. And if the Turks are going to lash out and act in this way, most of the ire should be directed at the Turks and the Turkish government. Instead, everything everything that Turkey does, people are saying, well, Trump gave the green light for this. Trump didn't tell the Turks. In fact, he's on the opposite. He said, do not do this. And today you have, or the last 48 hours, I should say, you have discussions going on about what actions the United States will take to punish the Turks for exactly what they have done here. Please, if you would, uh, Producer Mark, would you play uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying, look, we're ready to rock and put some sanctions here on the Turks. Play 23. The national security team met yesterday in the Situation Room. We'll be meeting again this morning. I think you know this is an evolving situation. We're monitoring the situation carefully. As I said, the sanctions are ready to go. We'll be updating the president this morning, and when he makes the decision, we'll activate it. Sanctions ready to go. So when people say that it's the green light from the president, that's not that's not fair. That's not what's happened here. I mean, yes, the president did move about 50 troops. We still have about a thousand or so, at least that we're told about in Syria. And as a result, the Turks now have started to seize territory. But a fascinating thing is also happening, my friends. Uh, so, so keep in mind that the Turks are the ones that are making the situation the mess that it is right now. And they have agency. They have they're making their own decisions and they deserve some blame in this process. And the Trump administration is saying, I'm sorry, but this is not okay, and we're going to punish you economically. The good thing is that Turkey's economy is not some powerhouse. So if we want to make things hurt a little bit, we can. But now you have the reports about the release of ISIS ISIS militants, terrorists who are in uh, Kurdish custody. You have some family members of ISIS militants who it's believed have already been released. And looking at this now, what we see is the Syrian government coming in and taking control of some of these areas after the U.S. has backed out of them. Now, this is being reported on as Syrian troops are entering towns in northern Syria. This is being reported on as a as a as a show of how terrible things are. Trump's decision here is awful. All right. Well, let's let's look at this for a moment. What was the alternative for everyone who keeps telling me, oh, we've abandoned the Kurds and it's terrible. And I do feel badly for those Kurdish fighters who are brave. Keep in mind, though, also, I'm I'm trying to give you more of a perspective here because this the narrative is being driven by by two things right now, anti-Trumpism and interventionism and interventionism from a military and national security establishment. And a lot of so-called experts and think tanks in D.C. and people go on TV here in New York and don't know what the heck they're talking about. Never learn the lessons of this is not our fight. We shouldn't be doing this. They never learn that lesson. It's always, oh, but what? But what happens after we leave? Yeah, bad things will happen. What happens if we stay? If we can't leave Syria, how are we ever going to leave Afghanistan? We're going to be in Afghanistan forever? This is now this is something that the American taxpayer to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year is just going to continue to just pay for. Why? What are we doing there? There are plenty of countries where there are terrorist groups operating international jihadist entities that are targeting America. We're going to invade all of them too. leave a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand U.S. troops. Some of you are saying, Buck, we are look at all the bases we have all over the world. Yeah, but we try not to set up new bases in countries that are in the middle of a war or where terrorists control 
whole pieces of territory and can attack those bases. That's we, we try to avoid that. We don't always succeed. But I keep coming back to, oh, yeah. And also the the fighters, the Kurdish fighters, they weren't that we didn't pick them up and airdrop them in some foreign country and say, hey, will you guys do all the fighting for us? This is their country. The Kurds that we're talking about here that took Raqqa and that took the fight to ISIS and took thousands of casualties, they were targets of the Islamic State. So we helped them defeat an enemy in their own country. That needs to be remembered. Yeah, we're glad that we partnered up with them, but the narrative right now is turned into, well, the Kurds did our fighting for us. No, we helped the Kurds do fighting they needed to do. Well, you're not hearing that from other people, are you? You're not hearing this part of the discussion. Yeah, the Kurds owe us a debt of gratitude as well. I don't know why no one seems to understand this. Right now, I know that sounds that's completely anathema because we've backed off and we, we've uh, backed away from commitments to continue assisting them in certain parts of northern Syria that are right along the Turkish border. And the Turks are being deeply unhelpful, which they frequently are in the region, almost always. Uh, you know, won't let us do certain flight, certain kinds of missions from the uh, you know the air base in uh, Injerlik in Turkey. I mean, there's all kinds of all kinds of restrictions. I mean, the Turks are just a constant pain, and they're supposed to be a NATO ally. And wow, I mean, compare what it's like dealing with the Poles and then dealing with the Turks, or you know, name name a NATO country that's been helpful to us in recent years. So we help them do fighting they needed to do in their own country. That gets left out of this discussion. I think that's something we need to remember and then there's this other part of it okay what are we supposed to do here we're going to leave u.s troops there for how long i know that the turks fired on a place where they knew there was some u.s military presence they're claiming it was an accident some people say they were sending a message tough to know exactly without being there on the ground and really knowing the circumstances of it i mean i could be persuaded right now that it was either it was either incompetence or sending a message it really depends on some of the Additional details and factors. But okay, what are we really going to do? How long does our commitment to the Kurds continue? Are we going to set up an independent Kurdistan in Syria? We, we thought about doing that in Iraq, and then we realized that that would lead to civil war and all kinds of problems, most likely. So, And that would also mean that we were showing up and helping to dismember a nation state in a way that we felt would be beneficial to us. Yeah, sure, beneficial to the region, but there was no Kurdish. There's no... There's Kurdistan in theory or Kurdistan in practice in northern Iraq, but it's really a federal region that is still very much a part of the, you know, the Iraqi government wants to send troops up. They'll send troops up. I mean, this is it's not an independent country. Are we going to carve that out of northern Syria? Okay, who's going to administer that? Is it going to come out of Syrian government territory? Will the Syrian government accept that? Are we going to try to take a piece of Turkey? Well, of course not. The Turks would lose their minds. In fact, the Turks are already losing their minds about the fact that we've been working with the YPG militia as it is. Ah, but then we get to a point that is always lost in this discussion. Assad won the Syrian civil war. The Syrian civil war was being fought for years with over a half a million dead, by the way, all occurring under the Obama administration. This, this gets lost in the discussion today, too. The Syrian civil war was won by the Assad regime because Assad stayed in power. Sure, he lost control over some parts of his country to this day. But does anyone really think that over the long term, he will not reestablish control in those areas? 
Why are we thinking that it's such a terrible thing? Well, we keep hearing, oh, the Russian-backed Assad regime. Yes, that's right. The Russian-backed Assad regime. Who, who else is going to be in charge in this country? You, you, there's no talk about really a political settlement anymore where Assad's not in charge. Is someone going to try to fight a war against Assad on behalf of, of who exactly? We're worried about the resurgence of ISIS. So was the plan to keep U.S. military in Syria to fight alongside the Kurds, to stave off any military action for the Turks, to stave off military action from Assad, to take back the territory in a country that's still technically Syria? There is no other country to deal with and and just try to push back on any Iranian interventionism in Syria and possible attacks against our troops and our interests there indefinitely. That was that's really the plan is for us to stay there and back the Kurds up for the next 20 years, 30 years. Well, if it's not to set up a country inside of Syria and what is there going to be a U.N. mandate for that? Will the Arab League go along with that? I mean, what what was the plan? No one ever talks about this. What, what was the plan supposed to be? They say they, they mock this this notion of a forever war, even though we've been in Afghanistan for almost 20 years now, going on 20 years, still in Iraq. Going on, you know, what, 17 years. So someone explain to me what the plan was supposed to be in Syria. And for all these people that are uh, pointing to the uh, casualties that the Kurds are taking, and, and I, I look, I, I feel badly about it. I think the Kurds have done excellent fighting for their interests and our interests, and they're brave, and they're trying to carve out really a piece of civilization in a very uncivilized part of, of Syria. Um, trying to have some rule, some uh, some rule of law, some order. And I, and I respect all of that. But I also recall all of the U.S. troops that have been fighting in Iraq and Syria for how many years? How many of them are currently still missing limbs, rehabilitating injuries, dealing with PTSD? How many families... Gold Star families are there who lost a loved one fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan for what exactly at this point? Stability? Continuation of the status quo? Is that is that why our military exists? To hold together countries that can't hold themselves together? And also have a tremendous amount of ingratitude, not just from a lot of the people in that country, but from the region, from the Muslim world, from the rest of the world. No, I don't. I don't think so. I, I I don't find that circumstance acceptable. And at the end of the day, if the Kurds have to do their own fighting and settle their own disputes and their own problems in Syria, but that means that some of you listening to this who are going on, I can't even count how many deployments in the Middle East, don't have to show up in Syria and try to prevent the Turks from killing the Kurds and the Syrians from killing the Kurds and the Russians from backing the Syrians from killing the Kurds who are killing ISIS who are this mess, this hornet's nest. If that means that some of you listening to this or your children, perhaps, aren't going to have to go out there and do this and do this fighting. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to accept the situation as it is playing out right now in Syria. Do we learn the lesson or not? It's going to be hard. All right. As I've been telling you, after the Second World War, we accepted a circumstance where basically half the world was condemned to totalitarianism, servitude and slavery. 
But, you know, it was a win because at least it wasn't Nazi Germany. That's what we thought at the time, right? Find me a war, give me the aftermath of it, and I'll tell you about how not everybody wins. And I don't just mean on the losing side. I mean not everybody wins on the winning side. Find me a war and you'll have a situation that will remind us all that we don't want to fight wars. And that should be a guiding principle. I think that's getting lost right now. I think it's also being just, we're just being screamed at by people who haven't learned the lessons of what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Do I think what Trump is doing is perfect? Do I think that he's managing this process? No, of course not. But on the fundamental question of is Syria our fight, I still stand very firmly in the corner of it is not our fight. We do not want to be there a day longer than we, we have to be. And I do not think we have to be there anymore. ISIS is defeated. Could ISIS be resurgent? Yeah, of course. They could be resurgent in Iraq, too. Hopefully we've learned some lessons about what happened in Iraq. Although ISIS is getting a whole other thing is the rise in jihadism and and uh, and other things in Iraq right now. We're not even here. We're not hearing about that. It's never going away, folks. We're never going to win this thing. So we never have to fight it again. We should accept that and understand that. Instead of just allowing all this propaganda about how Trump is terrible to overtake us. How concerned should we be about abandoning an ally like the Kurds that maybe 20 years down the road this comes to bite right. us? I think Secretary of State uh, Pompeo, the intelligence services, uh, the foreign countries that are working with us have it about right that ISIS is not defeated. Uh, we have got to keep the pressure on ISIS so they don't recover. We may want a war over. We may even declare it over. Uh, you can pull your troops out, as President Obama learned the hard way, mm-hmm. uh, out of Iraq. But the enemy gets a vote, we say, in the military. And in this case, if we don't keep the pressure on, then ISIS will resurge. It's, it's absolutely uh, a given that they will come back. It's the same argument for Afghanistan, folks. Taliban's going to be resurgent. Taliban's going to take over that country. So we stay forever. That's it. There is no there is no reasonable future in which there's not the possibility of an ISIS, ISIS resurgence. Oh, no, actually, there is. You know what it's called? The Assad regime, as bloodthirsty and horrible as it is, the Assad regime is in charge. It looks like that's what's happening. So we, we got to pick our pathway here at some point. I know Mattis, people say he's a genius and he's brilliant. Well, the geniuses didn't manage to figure out Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't think they're going to figure this one out either. NBC News is not having its best week ever, folks. NBC News is looking like a place that has a lot of trouble. Um, Well, we've known about this for some time now, but this is uh, in relation to the Ronan Farrow book, Catch and Kill. And I've said it before, Ronan Farrow had the single worst TV I've ever seen on, uh, the worst TV show I've ever seen on cable news. The, The literally the worst one I've, it was like watching this guy every day. I was like, hey, I have a TV show, and uh, I'm just sort of going to uh, read off some prompters. And it's 2 o'clock, so who's really watching this anyway? And uh, I uh, look like they just pulled me out of a high school class, and uh, now they put me on TV. So uh, here I am. And uh, But I worked at the State Department for like six months, so I know some things. Uh, it's It was astonishingly bad. I mean, and by the way, no no one really denies that. I mean, it was horrible. It was almost as bad as... Hillary Clinton's on-air performance at NBC. Where she, I'm sorry, Chelsea Clinton, pardon me. Hello! Her performance at NBC, NBC where she was making the six or 700K for being the worst on-air correspondent in the history of on-air correspondence. Ah, media. 
What a biz- What a business. I really should open like a, I don't know. I was going to say falafel stand, but maybe a hot dog stand, something like that. Just, you know, capitalism, business. But I'd open up like a suite of them, a whole bunch of them. And, you know, Papa Buck would find a way to make some money. But uh, NBC, okay, what's going on here? You got Ronan Farrow, who is now the uh, lead journalist, I'd say, in the in the Me Too movement era on that issue, even though he sold his credibility to try and take down Kavanaugh. I mean, he wrote that piece about Ramirez, and it was a joke, and it wasn't, I mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't funny, but I mean, it was preposterous, and it was an obvious effort to leverage the brand that he had built as the Me Too guy uh, the exposure of Harvey Weinstein as the predator that he is. He leveraged that, which was good work. We we do. We don't live in a fantasy world here. It was Harvey Weinstein uh, needed to get got, as they say. He needed to be exposed. Uh, he People should have known about that. And of course, people covered it up for years and years and you know, power corrupts and he was a powerful guy and he was corrupting the people around him. One of the Parts of that story that I still find, uh, we're, we're going to find out more about, I should say, is that there had to be, had to be uh, a whole bunch of enablers along the way who were just never held accountable. They just were never told what was, uh, or they've, they've never been brought up and uh, made to answer for what happened there. So the, the latest here is that this book, Catch and Kill, is coming out. And it's, I haven't been able to read it yet. I, I'm going to say I'm going to have to read it. Uh, I'm going to have to read it. I think, uh, which means I'm going to be adding to the uh, the take here, the take-home pay for Rodan Farrell on this book. I'm going to have to read it. I'd be very curious to see how deep into the details of, of NBC brass he goes with all this. But here's what we know that there was stuff that was happening at NBC that was way out of line, that there was a culture of, one, covering up for Harvey Weinstein, which I don't know how any executive could sleep at night having just the faintest idea about the sort of things that Weinstein was up to. Democrat, by the way. Big Democrat. You notice that that never gets Harvey Weinstein, Democrat, friend of the Clintons, friend of the Obamas. Gave, I think, uh, one of the Obama children a job. An internship. So Harvey Weinstein's not just some guy. Harvey Weinstein was left-wing Democrat media royalty. This guy was one of the most powerful figures in one of the most important areas of liberal dominance, which is entertainment media. Entertainment media. Look, what I do every day, I inform people. We try to entertain you, but our megaphones in the news business are, generally speaking, much smaller than what you get with, especially with movies back in the 90s and the early 2000s when Weinstein was making some of his biggest films. You know, a big movie, you know, felt like sometimes, how many of you saw, you know, Shakespeare in Love? Or how many, I'm trying to think, what are the what are the biggest Weinstein movies? He made a ton of big movies. I can't even think of them, but I saw Shakespeare in Love. It was entertaining. It's a little corny, but it's entertaining. Um, it won instead of Saving Private Ryan, though, which, wow, right? That strikes me as just outrageous. A lot of that, a lot of that decision making, though, is absurd. It is true. I remember when uh, what was it, Colin Jost, my old high school classmate, as it were, was that made some comment about how it used to be the case that the the best movies, the movies that everyone wanted to see, also have won Oscars. In the last ten years. 
the movies that are getting nominated and winning Oscars, I've never even heard of these things. And they're overwhelmingly trash and boring and just all about politics. They're glorified fictional editorials on the big screen, on the silver screen. Uh, movies, man. What can you do? I am watching The Americans, by the way, on Netflix, which I'm only a couple episodes into it. I started it once before. I'm restarting it. I'm going to get through the whole thing because I, I think I'm really going to like it. All right. So Ronan Farrell, what, what do we know about based on what he's already told us? Uh, well, there's some very some very bad stuff going on at NBC. And now you have NBC News president Noah Oppenheim, who has been pushing back against the claims that uh, have been made here. Here we go. NBC News president pushed back against this uh, on Monday, one day before the book's release. Oppenheim told his staff in the memo obtained by The Hollywood Reporter, quote, Matt Lauer's actions were abhorrent and the anger and sadness he caused continued to this day. As we've said since the moment he was fired, his abuses never should have happened. Ronan Farrow's book takes that undeniable fact and twists it into a lie, alleging we were a company with a lot of secrets. We have no secrets and nothing to hide. Now that we've read Farrow's book, it's clear his smear rests on the allegations that NBC management knew about and took steps to hide Lauer's misconduct before his firing. Without that, he has no basis on which to rest his second conspiracy theory that his Harvey Weinstein reporting was squashed to protect Lauer. Farrow alleges there were employees who reported Lauer's behavior to, uh, prior to November of 2017 and were paid settlements to silence them. Not only is this false, the so-called evidence Farrow uses in his book to support the charges collapse under the slightest scrutiny. Um, the note goes on to share the NBC Universal legal team analysis that only three examples that Farrow alleges are Lauer related before 2017 with even minimal detail. And they involve employees who by, by their own admission made no complaint to management and whose departure agreements were unrelated to Lauer and completely routine. Uh, those three examples reference a woman who was named in the book and who Farrow says shared the account of her incident with then anchor Ann Curry an on anchor personality who departed in 2012 and senior member of the today show team who departed in 2017 with a seven figure payout. Uh, folks, here's a simple way of just clarifying this. I do not believe for a second that NBC brass didn't know that Matt Lauer, this stuff doesn't, you know, people know about this. They, they spent all this time around this guy. They're paying this guy $25 million a year for what? Oh, cause he's the franchise, right? This is, they're all taking care of each other. The executives attach themselves to the talent. The talent attaches themselves to the executives. They can, you know, justify whatever they want in terms of payment as long as it falls in the overall budget of the show. Even though they, I mean, they could have... Does anybody miss Matt Lauer? Oh, no. What will we do without Matt Lauer to tell us about the best recipe for a feta and watermelon salad in the summer and, you know, then talk some real hard-hitting politics and, and then have a puppy run on stage? Oh, look at this season's great, most popular puppy. The whole morning show thing is, I, I, it's, look, it's just not for me. It's just not for me. I don't understand. I never watch, I mean, I've seen some of it, but I was never a Today Show watcher. Uh, you know, I, I get it. People want to kind of ease into their day and it's kind of light and everything else. But $25 million a year for that guy. I think it might have even got up to 30. He was the highest paid man in, uh, in news for years and years. He had a button installed on his desk to lock the door. The NBC brass didn't ever think that that was kind of weird. Oh, oh, because he needed security so badly. 
think think about how that would go. What's he? I mean, if if somebody were threatening him, is he going to lock them in the office with him? That's a bit strange, isn't it? Oh no, someone's running around the office looking for Matt Lauer. At least now he can press the weird, creepy button under his desk so then the person can't get i mean come on folks come on i told you this i i used to hear just in the i heard in the grapevine i mean i just would hear rumors about lauer with different staffers and everything else and that was when i was very early in my media career it's like oh yeah matt lauer everybody knows this stuff everyone ask any woman who particularly if she's under the age of 35 and works on any tv show you know, if you ask any, if you know anybody, ask them if the host of the show is, a, you know, if he's a dog. Ask if he's a guy that you can't trust. Or, well, they all know. They all know. In the same way that they'll know that if, a, if someone's a really good guy and respectful and professional and, and does their job and treats everybody well. And people know this stuff. I'll just tell you this. I'm wondering when I'm wondering when people are going to figure out some of the stuff that's gone on over at CNN. I don't have the goods, otherwise I would, but I, I know, I know some rumors about some stuff. Do we really, we really think that this was only going on with Lauer and at NBC? We think that CNN is, because remember NBC, MSNBC, they're, you know, one is kind of, it's just extensions of each other. We think CNN escaped this? We know, look, we know that Fox had to fire a lot of people and there was a lot of sexual harassment settlements there and let's not, we, we would never pretend that, that was, there wasn't some bad stuff and some bad things going on. There absolutely was. But they cleaned house. They cleaned house over there. Nothing at CNN, huh? Hmm. That's interesting because I've heard some things about some stuff. That's all I can say. But I've, I've heard some things about some stuff, and I tend to know. I tend to be right when I hear those things. Um, but is there anyone looking at it over there? No. Instead, what, what CNN has done is they've just tried to silence any dissenting voices inside or outside. They have people whose only job really is to just go on offense against anyone who's a, a, a danger to CNN's brand, a threat to the CNN uh, the CNN umbrella. Uh, but look, I, I hope that Ronan Farrow is able to land some real punches here with this book because this this is going on. Uh, the the covering up for power. Look, they're powerful Democrats. Lauer's a Democrat. These are all Democrats. Why were they? Why was it being covered up in this way? Not just internally at NBC, but elsewhere too. And why is it that Harvey Weinstein was able to get away with what he did as long as he did, in 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 a, for, in a fashion that's so aggressive and egregious? That once again, it's not possible. It is not credible. We're talking about credible and not credible. It's not credible that NBC executives didn't know what what uh, Matt Lauer was doing. It's not credible that a lot of people didn't know about Weinstein. In fact, we know that people did know. They just chose not to do anything about it. So I guess I got to add this to the stack. Catch and kill. I got to read about this one. I don't know when I'll get to it. I'll get to it hopefully relatively, relatively soon. But um, oh, one one other thing I wanted to point out uh, that. This just reminds me, because I mentioned Kavanaugh before. Where are the uh, where are the referrals currently about those who lied about Justice Kavanaugh to try to tear him down during his confirmation process? That's illegal, folks. That's illegal. We're talking about Me Too. What about the fake Me Too, which is what Kavanaugh exposed? The politicized Me Too. Wall Street Journal has a piece today. As Justice Brett Kavanaugh neared a year on the Supreme Court... The anniversary was used to relitigate the unverified allegations against him. 
No news, though, regarding the four false accusers whom the Senate referred for potential criminal inquiry. This week, nine Republicans asked the Justice Department for an update. These criminal referrals were not made lightly, says the letter signed by GOP Senators Chuck Grassley, Lindsey Graham, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, Mike uh, Crapo, Tom Tillis, John Kennedy, and Marsha Blackburn. One lurid tale was that a 1985 young Mr. Kavanaugh assaulted a warmer uh, assaulted a woman on a boat in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, the accuser soon recanted. Yeah, but you know that's that's a problem. You're not allowed to lie to try to destroy someone and then say, "Oops, sorry." My bad. Two of the referrals relate to Michael Avenatti, the lawyer now facing an April trial for alleged theft from Stormy Daniels. He and one of his clients told the Judiciary Committee they had evidence that Mr. Kavanaugh participated in gang raping women, gang raping women in the 1980s. A third Avenatti client purportedly signed a sworn statement saying Kavanaugh spiked party punch bowls with quaaludes. According to NBC, she subsequently denied that and claimed Mr. Avenatti, quote, twisted my words. Folks, these are lies told to Congress. These are crimes. What about what about rule of law? What about our democracy? These were crimes. These people committed crimes to try to help their side, the Democrats, to destroy Kavanaugh. Does the rule of law matter or does it not? Is this a serious country when it comes to breaking the law or is it a partisan country? Well, for some reason, no updates, no further information, nothing to speak of here. I find that a problem, folks. There needs to be consequences for people who sign sworn statements to destroy other human beings in violation of law, Brett Kavanaugh or anyone else for that matter. I'd like to know why there's been no movement on this. I'm curious, you could say. It's no secret that we are meeting here today at a very perilous juncture, a crossroads, one of extinction or opportunity. I am sad to report that there is no middle road on the climate crisis. We will either address the problem meaningfully and in accordance with scientific consensus, or we will not. The statement is not a matter of radicalism, it is a matter of fact. And many of the decisions we make, particularly as executives and policymakers, will either contribute to destruction or preservation. And that contribution is measured in the form of emissions, injustice, and inequality. That we must choose whether this moment will lead us to regression or evolution. All of this means that rising to the challenge of the climate crisis demands not only that we act meaningfully, but also that we change society. The two are inextricable. And meeting the climate crisis will require the largest economic mobilization we may have ever tried to pursue as a human species. And that is what a Green New Deal is all about. It's all crazy, that's for sure. Come on, folks. Extinction. Extinction of the human race. This is a sitting member of Congress. Where are the people? Where's SNL on this one? Why isn't anyone making fun of it? This is insane. This is lunacy. And yet she says it and thinks she sounds smart when she does it. The extinction versus opportunity will be measured with emissions, by by emissions, justice and equality. Okay, if this really is the scientific crisis they say it is, or the, the crisis rooted in scientific certainty that they say it is, what do emissions, justice and equality have to do with it? What's what's that got to do with with any of this stuff? 
Uh, emissions, clearly, I, I get that part. But justice and equality, hmm? Why, why is climate change about equality? Some, oh, that's right, because this is all meant to be an excuse for a massive statist authoritarian takeover based in the scientific consensus to allow a government to form that would not just be supranational, one world government, of course, that's the ultimate aim here, but also that could control any aspect of your life. And if you if you disagree, you are trying to destroy the planet. It's hard to think of a theory that is more bonkers and more terrifying at the same time than what they are now advancing openly in public here in the Democratic Party. Uh, AOC, what she's saying here, she's this is nuts, folks. Mandatory blackouts in California. You know, we were just talking a second ago about uh, Ocasio-Cortez with we're all going to go extinct. Oh, my gosh. OMG. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to go extinct. It's so scary. Unless they can, like, control all the things and, like, and that, like, get rid of the electoral college because it's, like, the worst college ever. There's no beer. There are no kegs. There's, like, no frat parties. Yeah, listen to that person about what we should do with the with trillions of dollars of wealth and and the direction of the global and U.S. economy with it. Uh, She she knows what she's talking about, folks. Wow. Going off the rails of a crazy train via the Green New Deal. That is what is happening. But California has turned into a uh, a laboratory of left-wing insanity. It is a one-party state, and it is really the model of what the Democrats would like to achieve in the whole country. And they think they can do it in part through the legalization of illegals to change the electorate forever. People say, oh, but illegals can't vote. Well, if they're legalized, guess what? You know what happens after they're all legalized? People are going to say, well, they should also have a way to become citizens. And even if they don't become citizens, then also their children, as we know, through birthright citizenship are immediately citizens. And look, if my parents were illegals and then one political party is like, no, they didn't break the law. They're totally allowed in this country. They're the heart and soul of the American dream. People love their parents. I'd, I'd want to vote for the party that that said that, too, and not the party that said, yeah, maybe maybe breaking laws and skipping the immigration line and all that is something that we shouldn't advocate for. Um, human nature being what it is, I understand that. But one party state in California has not worked out that well for the Californians. And the most recent example of this is the PG&E which I think was the name of, I think that's the utility company from Aaron Brockovich too, right? I think it's the same, the one that Aaron Brockovich goes after. Uh, very interesting. If you ever are curious, read about the the cancer clusters that Aaron Brockovich, hero of uh, the trial lawyers and Democrats across the country. Uh, and of course, from the movie with Julia Roberts, all anyone knows of the movie, find out, you'll find that the cancer clusters that she established uh, are no more prevalent than the national norm. Meaning that, yeah, people get cancer. They get cancer all over the country. It's a terrible thing, but why or why is it anyway the, the science behind all that stuff is something that would be interesting to look into national review did some good work on this but you know people want to believe in heroes and i, I get it so they don't really no one really wants to dig too far into that but pg and e is the uh, utility company in california and here's where things stand it's poorly run which is not surprising there's all kinds of environmental regulations and as we know california has been hit with these terrible wildfires wildfires people are dying in the wildfires, losing their homes in it. And so now the state of California has whole sections of it that go into a a mandatory blackout. They turn off the power for hours and hours at a time if uh, there's too, if the wind is too high. 
The problem being here that if the wind is too high, there's the possibility of branches or trees falling, falling on power lines, falling power lines cause fires. Then the brush and debris clearing situation, the forestry situation in California is terrible for a whole bunch of reasons. And you get these big fires. And instead of dealing with what, why are the fires worse now? What's been happening? They just say, oh, it's climate change. It's not climate change. Just stop with that crap. People say this stuff. They, they say it, they get mad at you. Then you say, okay, show me the evidence. And then there's no evidence. They say, but the scientists. But the scientists is not an argument. As much as I know libs like to pretend that it is. But you have these uh, these rolling blackouts now in, in uh, California. Which, for those of you like me who have spent considerable amounts of time in what is known as the developing or the third world, that's just a fact of life in a lot of places, including major cities. Like, oh, power's going out for a few hours. Why? Because they've got a crappy power grid and not enough power generation going on. So all of a sudden, you're just in darkness. It's like, well, I guess we can't work for a few hours. And that's always a really a signals to you how efficient an economy, how efficient a government is. When they just say, yeah, I guess we're going to be in the dark for a few hours because we can't figure this out. Uh, that now happens in California, which is the fifth. If it were a country, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world on its own. And is the home to probably more high tech, world class, high tech startups than any other place in the world. And if the power goes out, they can't keep the light. They literally can't keep the lights on in whole sections of California. Now, to this, you always have people pointing out, they'll say, oh, but California is such a wealthy state. So many people still live there. Yeah, but the, as I've been telling everybody, California has only been a Democrat loony bin for about 20 to 30 years now, depending on how you want to gauge it. Really, it's changed. California was a reliably Republican state until the 80s, at, at least in national elections. It has changed recently and dramatically. And, you know, the, one of the things that you see when you look at how uh, central planning and state control of an economy and overregulation, it doesn't fail all at once. It doesn't fail overnight. It takes time. So those who point to California and say, but look at it, it's such a populous state. It's such a wealthy state. Yes, but people moved there and were living there and, and choosing to go there before all the crazy stuff was happening. Now, in fact, California on net is losing population, losing population in places like Nevada and Texas. Uh, the tax burden is very, very high, as we know. And once you're in a state, it becomes very hard for a lot of companies to relocate out of the state. And so there's a there is a, a degree of they can milk the cow, so to speak, for a long time. They, they, they had a very fat, very happy cow in California. I'm really belaboring this analogy. But it takes a while before you run out of milk. It takes a while before you see how destructive the government policies are because you have accumulations of wealth and population and, uh, and some degree of statewide just cohesiveness, cohesion among people about how they live their lives, what they want to do. California is incredibly rich in natural resources, incredibly rich in, well, just rich as a state. And yet there's a real feeling that it's destroying itself. And they never learn the lessons that they always have some external, uh, some external person or, or organization or something of you know, Trump, obviously, but other things that they'll point to as why they have. Why is the homelessness population exploding there? Why can't they keep the lights on? Why are they having droughts? This is all bad management. 
These are all decisions made by the government at the state of California and the state and local level. And they just pretend that there's no lesson to be learned. There's no problem. They're wrong. What they are doing is slowly destroying what's one of the most beautiful and really most incredible states in the country. And just as socialists do in so many places, as statists do in so many places, they keep telling you that everything's fine as they're destroying it and blaming everybody else. And by the time we figure out how messed up it really is, it's too late to change it. That's what I think we're heading to with that state. You're going to see real disasters happening there. Uh, disasters of, gov- of government failure. And the latest round of, of power outages, blackouts, intentional blackouts, is just another example of state can't get its can't get its act together. Doesn't know what it's doing. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. Team Bucket, iHeartMedia.com for all of your roll call needs, my friends. That is where you send us the stuff. That is where you let us know what's up. Uh, you can also send us a message on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BuckSection. Tomorrow we launch the Pluto TV stream of the show. It's very exciting. You can watch me as I'm talking about all the things. So if you prefer, if you're a visual learner, perhaps that will be your favorite way to consume the show. Uh, but do check it out. It'll be fun. As we go along, we'll also start to have some guests hopefully in person. We'll have some fun in here. Come out the coast. Have a few laughs. It'll be great. So Pluto TV. And also the uh, the podcast. Please do share the podcast uh, so that we continue to boost those numbers. And I just want to crowd out as many libs on the top 100 list as possible uh, from iTunes. So and from the from iHeart, iHeart uh, Radio. So I, I want to crowd out lib podcasts i need your help to do that we're already doing well but we want to do a lot better and that means you got to share this by just tell just tell it's free just tell somebody hey just check out the buck sexton show this guy's kind of smart knows some things he's a smart guy he's wicked smart that's for you boston i miss you all right william writes uh, hey buck even though ag Barr signed off on the indictment of the two giuliani ukraine associates This does not negate the fact that the failure to give the president's attorney a heads up may be construed as a hostile act of entrapment by the administrative state at DOJ. Uh, William. Um, Okay, William, I don't really know what that is, but I mean, I'm not really sure what your hostile act of entrapment by the administrative state. Yeah, I have to look at that, my friend, but interesting nonetheless. Bob writes, hey, Buck. Give Jim Gaffigan a listen. He's got a hilarious special on Netflix, and one of his recurring characters uh, is a long way toward Elizabeth Warren. Gaffigan isn't trying to imitate Warren, but you'll know it when you hear it. The voice, I mean. I thought if you heard it, you'd identify some things you could uh, employ. Your impression, as you've mentioned, is a work in progress. Shields high, Bob. All right, Bob, I'll check it out. Well, I'm going to have me a beer. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, beer gate. The most awkward, lame. Did you, did you see that? Do you know what I'm talking? I about? did not know. Oh yeah, she's like, oh yeah, hi everybody. I'm gonna have me a beer, and everyone's like, why don't you just have the beer? Why do you have to tell us you're gonna have a beer? You know, that sounds ridiculous. Also, your impression's getting better. Thank you. I think I it's better that. than the Hillary screech. Yeah, it is. Well, the Hillary screech is just that's they're different just, people. Yeah, that, the different people. That's also it's just more of a of an instinctual. That's how I feel whenever I hear. That's what I hear. When Hillary speaks, even though 
technically she does not sound like Iago from um, Aladdin. Remember? Yes. Ah! Jafar! That's, oh, that's fantastic. I, I never Thank put the two and two together there. Right? Wow, that's really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, see? Aladdin! Um, all right, here we go. Dorothy writes... How can we help the president and let him know we support him? Well, Dorothy, step one, vote for him. Step two, tell other people to vote for him. Step three, tell people to listen to the Buck Sexton Show. Boom! Your step-by-step guide to the awesome. So there is that. Uh, let's see here. I don't have a name on this one, but it seems... Oh, Mark in Louisiana. Yeah, Mark in Louisiana. I'm saying it almost right, Louisiana. Buck. Your Justin Trudeau impression reminds me of Peter Sellers' portrayal of Chief Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies. If you've not seen any of the Pink Panther films, then I urge you strongly to see one. There's nothing funnier than seeing an Englishman playing a French detective. Shields high, muzzles level, go Navy, beat Army. Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movie. I remember when everybody from France kind of sounded like this in all the movie, and then... uh... You always, it was like, does he have a beret that he carries around with him just in case? No, something like this, something like that. Producer Mark, maybe you, maybe you bring me to the wedding. I do the toast in the French accent just so I can say, ah, bon chance and uh, bon anniversaire, producer Mark. Now you have it. Well, like that a, sounds like a good way to have a really quick divorce. Oh wow. Oh. Okay, fine. Then, then, then uh, Trudeau will not show up at your wedding. It's funny because people listen to the actual Trudeau. He's much more like. Hello, everybody. I'm a liberal uh, Canadian, and uh, yeah, he sounds like he more sounds, more like Mr. Rogers. Yeah, he's he much more like, oh, hello. I just, I have this very soft, inoffensive voice, eh? And I just talk. He talks like this all the time. But I prefer if he's uh, if we took P- if we took Trudeau and made him sound more like Pierre the Lumberjack, who cuts down the trees and wears the uh, black and red check shirt like the Lumberjacks do. You sound like Pierre Escargot from all that. I don't know if you ever watched that show. No. There's he a guy Kenan named Thompson. Pierre Escargot? No, it was a character. All that is like kids SNL. Oh. Well, I, I but mean, it was I, Keenan Thompson back in the day, in my era. I, I, first of all, I think I'm going to have to change my name to Pierre Escargot. That'd be great. Escargot's delicious. You'll make millennials happy. That's right. There's a little bit of cultural. I, but I can culturally appropriate whatever I want from France. I will take their baguettes. I will take their brie. I will take their women. All of the above. Well, if you're being Justin Trudeau, you have to say poutine and uh, smoked meats and oh, stuff right. like that. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. More of that... Uh, French Canadian. I should probably go up to Montreal just so I could work on my uh, my French Canadian accent a little bit. J to the C, JC. Um, uh, I can't. This isn't coming up. All right. Well, whatever. That's all right. Let's go to our next one here. James, a great name. Whoa, this is really long. Hey, Buck. I come not to praise Buck nor bury him. I extend an honorable hand of aid so he can go to weddings and anywhere he pleases and eat with gusto. I'm not sure we can get there for producer Mark's wedding, but definitely for future events. Mazel tov, producer Mark. Love the show. Um, all right. There we go. Thank you. Appreciate that. Tim. Buck, Chadwick Moore was an excellent guest as well as uh, a guest host, rather. His humor, sarcasm, and insights regarding political power as the driving force behind the LGBT activism are confirmation of what I have observed having my two children in major campus universities. Oh, Tim, I think I read this last week and I forgot. But thank you so much for that, my friend. And I'm glad that people liked uh, hearing from Chadwick. He's a new new buddy of mine. And it was his first time ever hosting three hours on radio. So we skipped we skipped all the like local show stuff for him and went right to national syndication as a guest host, which it's how we it's how we roll. Um, 
All right, let's see what we have here. Next up. Dun, 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 dun. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I wasn't really singing. I know some of you are like, Buck, don't sing. Whatever. If you want me to not sing, if, uh, if all of you share the podcast with one person, I promise I will stop singing. But I'll know by looking at the numbers. All of you have to share it. That's, that's, the, that's the trade-off we're going to make here. Uh, let's see. Rory. All right. Whoa, here we go. Greetings and salutations. I must admit your imitation of a Scotsman's accent was humorous, yet too Hollywood. On to other matters. Hey, Rory. Hey, laddie. Akin. Akin, it's not perfect impression. On to other matters. I've listened to your podcast in regards to the left's war on the First Amendment created within, uh, that created within me thoughts on the boiling frog theory. Look at AOC's ideology and policy desires. Union Seminary having students confess their sins to plants. CNN's town hall for LGBTQ. A nine-year-old transgender, really? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they push their ideologies upon society little by little. Eventually, they tr- reach their ultimate goal. Their ideologies become agendas and policies. In 1993, at Camp Pendleton, during, Marine tr- uh, during training, Marines were asked if they would confiscate firearms from U.S. citizens. Of those asked, 94% answered no. Well, that's, that's important to hear. There's even more here. Postscript. I don't have that acquired taste to enjoy frog legs. Let's keep it simple, because meat and potatoes are our main staple in diet and life. Hey, laddie, Rory. Thank you, laddie. That's going to be it from the Freedom Hunt today. Tomorrow, Pluto TV, it's on, my friends. Check it out. Download the Pluto TV app for free also. Share the podcast. Until tomorrow, happy, th- uh, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Uh, that's the wrong day. Happy Columbus Day. Shields high.